For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. Our sermon title this morning is Love That Endures, Love That Endures, part two, Romans chapter 12, verse 12. So we are back in Romans 12 this morning, where in Romans chapter 12, Paul is now systematically unpacking for us the implications of the gospel for practical Christian living. How should you live as a Christian? Uh, We're going to live based upon the doctrine of the gospel that Paul has unpacked in chapters 1 through 11 of this book. Paul is unpacking the implications of the gospel for practical Christian living. Paul has said that the scriptures are inspired by God. Peter, holy men of God, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And as God's word to us... Paul has said that the scriptures are profitable, not only profitable for doctrine, but on the basis of that doctrine, the scriptures are profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that, or for the purpose that, the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So in Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, Paul, in those chapters, has established a foundation He has established a foundation of doctrine on which our salvation is secured. And in Romans chapter 12 then, Paul begins to demonstrate the implications of that doctrine for Christian living, for practical Christian living. The implications of that doctrine for reproof, for our correction, and for our instruction in the practice of righteousness. Based upon the mercies of God, in other words, based on that good doctrine of the gospel, based upon all that God has done for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, all of that revealed to us in his word, we are then, based upon that, by the mercies of God, we are to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Like we talked about in the Lord's Supper this morning, that's not an empty ritual, that's based upon an informed Faith. It is the only reasonable or rational response of someone who has been bestowed all of those blessings. We are to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. We are to resist being pressed into the worldly patterns of this evil age. That's verse 2. And we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That will be manifest. That transformation, that renewal, that living sacrifice... That will be manifest first and foremost in our relationship to the Lord's church. And that's where Paul begins with his practical implications. It'll be manifest in our relationships to one another as brothers and sisters in the household of God. In consideration of or by the mercies of God made evident to us in his word, we're going to conduct ourselves with humility. Verse 3. We're going to acknowledge the Lord's wisdom in placing us in the church. The Lord has done that. Verses 4 and 5. We're going to labor for the edification of the Lord's body with the gifts that he has given us, that's verses six through eight. We're going to love one another as he has loved us, verses nine through 13. We're going to love one another with a sincere, a genuine, a Christ-like love, with a love that does not fail. Love from the heart, as we've described, love that is focused upon another person 
with affectionate warmth or delight such that you think, speak, and act with enduring commitment and self-sacrificing devotion to that other person's biblical and spiritual good. It's that kind of love that Paul is commanding, that he's enjoining here in the text. It's in this way, brothers and sisters, laying a foundation of doctrine chapters 1 through 11, and now exploring or unpacking the practical implications of the gospel for Christian living in chapters 12 through 16, it's in this way that Paul draws a straight line between doctrine and Christian living. Doctrine and the Christian life. A straight line between doctrine and being complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The doctrine of Romans 1 through 11 and the implications of Romans 12 through 16. If you think about that connection, We've talked about that connection a lot. We could not possibly overstate the importance of making that connection, okay? James describes it as a matter of life and death. James says we are to receive with meekness, with humility. We are to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. And in context, that word is the word of the gospel. That word by which in James chapter one, he has brought us forth. And then having received with meekness that implanted word, we are to be doers of that word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. James says, if anyone is a hearer only and not a doer of the word, quoting from James chapter one, this one's religion is useless. It's useless. In other words, it must. That doctrine, that revealed truth must have an impact on the way that we live, on the way that we love, on the way that we serve. I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, it's only God's revealed truth that is going to have that acceptable impact on the way that we love, on the way that we worship, on the way that we serve. We have to have our faith informed by God's word. And here's the point. Is our understanding, is our embrace of all that Paul has taught us in Romans chapter one through Romans chapter 11, is that going to transform us, transform our thinking? Is it going to transform how we serve the Lord and how we love one another in Romans chapter 12? Is it going to do that? Absolutely, it's going to do that. Paul says that it will. Paul says that it must. By the grace of God, in consideration of the mercies of God, the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ revealed in his word, it must have an impact on how we love one another, how we serve in the Lord's church, how we serve the Lord as part of his body. That doctrine, the truth of his word, is the foundation upon which we will present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The spirit of God uses the means of his implanted word to sanctify us from this world, to transform us by or through the renewing of our mind, to fuel, to motivate, even to compel or constrain our service to his body and our love for one another. That said, you must be born again, you must be indwelt by the spirit of God, and you must have the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Indwelt by the spirit, born again, a new heart, The word of Christ dwelling in you richly, you will be transformed. God is seeing to it. He has predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son. The word of God, think with me, brothers and sisters. The word of God must make its way in through your ear gate 
or in through your eye gate. It must make its way into your mind. In our mind, it must become the raw material of our meditation. It must become the subject of our reason. It must become the content of our understanding. Received with meekness, welcome not as the mere word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of the living God. It must take root in the heart. Who he is, what he has done as revealed in his word must become the content of our delight, must be embraced in faith as true. And it's through that means, the means of his word applied in the heart by the spirit that we then resist conformity to this world that we resist being pressed into the patterns of this evil age. It's through that means that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we learn to serve and love and live as we ought in conformity or in adherence to Romans chapter 12. So it's gotta get into your mind, into your heart, through your ear gate, through your eye gate. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So does that mean then for the Christian, does that mean that a better understanding of justification by faith alone from Romans chapter four is going to directly impact how we love one another in Romans chapter 12? You better believe it does. (laughs) Absolutely it does. It most certainly will. Is it, is a better understanding of representation or imputation from Romans chapter five, is that going to have a direct impact on how we serve the body in Romans chapter 12? Absolutely it will. There is a direct line between the two. Absolutely that is the case. We must learn. We must understand. We must embrace these truths through faith. We've got to get it in us, right? You've got to be vitally connected to the vine and you are vitally connected by his spirit through the word. That good doctrine, who he is, what he has done, is absolutely going to be the basis for our joy in the instruction that we've considered so far in verse 12. You're going to rejoice in hope. You're rejoicing in the content of our hope. We're not merely rejoicing at hope or rejoicing with hope. We're rejoicing in hope. We're rejoicing in the hope that has been revealed to us through the word of God. Our hope is to be the cause or the ground of our joy. We are to rejoice through the means of the hope that has been revealed to us. Dr. Murray, however tried by affliction, However tried by suffering, by trial, by tribulation, the reaction appropriate in view of our hope is rejoicing. If you're like me, when we face tribulation, when we face trials, when we face difficulties, often the first reaction out of our flesh is, oh no, (laughs) is worry and fear and doubt and discouragement. That's the first reaction that comes out of our flesh. How do you get from that fleshly reaction, how do you get from that to truth? How do you get from that to the fact that we can rejoice with Paul, with Peter, with James, we can rejoice in trials and suffering and tribulation and affliction? How do you get from that fear, worry, doubt to joy? You've got to get the word of God, the promises of God, the revealed word of God in through your ear gate, in through your eye gate, into your mind, plunged into your heart. God, by his spirit, does that work of getting you from despair to joy. We've got to get it in us. 
If your comprehension of hope is shallow, then your joy is going to be shallow. And Paul's point from Romans chapter 12 is this. If your joy is shallow, then your love is going to be shallow. Your love, at worst, will be a hypocritical, insincere love. Your love will be weak. The Brookings Institute <laughs> found that American eighth graders felt great about their math ability. They feel great about their math ability. You ask an American eighth grader, how are you doing in math? I'm doing great in math. I know math well. And then they score bottom on all the math tests, right? They, they score with some of the lowest scores uh, in the world on standardized math tests. Korean eighth graders, in contrast, when these tests were done, who had far less self-esteem about their math ability, scored much higher on math exams and yet felt worse about it. The same attitude that has infiltrated the American education system, for example, the same attitude that infiltrated the prideful and self-reliant American mind has also infiltrated the American professing church. We act like a bunch of prideful, self-reliant eighth graders. <laughs> we think we're great. We think we're great. We're, we think we're doing fine. We know these things. We know these things. We have all the confidence in the world until we're faced with a test. We have all the confidence in the world until we're faced with a test. We are, in reality, we're prone to be lazy. We're prone to be negligent. We are prone to be ignorant. And we are prone to be prideful. And then, and then, with all the knowledge, with all the confidence of an American eighth grader, we'll argue doctrine. We'll assert what we know. <laughs> when the real measure, when the real measure of your comprehension in these things, the real measure uh, of your comprehension of God's word is clearly seen in your devotion to his word, in your devotion to the Lord, in your commitment to his church, and in your love for one another. A love that is without hypocrisy, a love that endures through adversity, a love that adheres to his word. It is devastating, devastating as we've seen. It is devastating when the church is filled with professing Christians who think and act like an American eighth grader. No, offen no offense to humble and diligent eighth graders, right? But when we act that way with the word of God, we're doing a disservice to ourselves and to the Lord's church. With regard to our text then, in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, that same informed or doctrinally grounded love that rejoices in hope through difficult circumstances is the same informed or doctrinally grounded love that is patient in tribulation and continue steadfastly in prayer. You want to test the means of your comprehension, the measure of your comprehension of the truths that God has revealed to us in his word? Then how are you with prayer? How are you in your reliance upon God during trials and tribulations? How's your love for one another in the Lord's church? How's your commitment to the Lord's church? Right? The, the real measure of your comprehension of these things is seen in your devotion to the Lord, in your devotion to his word, in your devotion and love for one another. Again, to borrow language from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as we did in part one on this text, the kind of informed or doctrinally grounded love that Paul is referring to in our text is a sincere or a genuine love that bears all things, believes all things, 
hopes all things, endures all things. It's that kind of love. It remains steadfast in the face of challenges. It is patient in tribulation. Love, it's a love that never fails. As sincere love believes all things and hopes all things, rejoicing in hope, the language of Romans chapter 12, verse 12, for the triumph of grace, a sincere love, a love that is without hypocrisy, will also bear all things and endure all things. In the language of our text, it's a love that is patient in tribulation. Now, Paul, when Paul says patient in tribulation, Paul has in mind, certainly, a love that endures through adversity, a love that endures, that persists, that perseveres through tribulation, a love that does not wither under the heat of trials. That's what Paul has in mind. Paul frequently refers to his own trials in the church, uh, his own trials in service of the Lord. His instruction to the church, his instruction to us, is often framed in terms of our own experience with persecution and with suffering. And Paul reminds us, Acts 14, 22, that it's going to be through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. You and I are going to face suffering. We are going to face trial. There are many who would like you to think that we're going to escape tribulation. We're not going to escape tribulation in this life. We're going to go through tribulation. We need to endure. We need a faith that perseveres. We need a love that endures. So Paul certainly has in mind a sincere love, a love without hypocrisy that is patient in tribulation, a, a love that endures through trial, a love that weathers the storms of suffering that we're going to face in the Christian life. However, more particularly and more in context, Paul specifically has in mind the trials that arise in our relationships to one another in the Lord's church. That's the context that Paul is speaking in right now in Romans chapter 12. The context of our relationships to one another in the Lord's body as members of the Lord's church. Our love must be steadfast. Our love must endure not only the tribulations or the assaults that we'll face from those outside of our church. Our love must be steadfast. Our love must be patient, enduring the trials, enduring the tribulations we're going to face in our relationships with others inside the Lord's church. That's specifically the context that Paul is speaking of. And when you think about that, that instruction is very practical, isn't it? <laughs> we are going to offend one another. When you do a lot of talking, you're going to offend all the time. <laughs> we're going to sin against one another. Wrongs, real or imagined, right? offenses, real or only perceived, we are going to disagree. There is going to be conflict. We are sinful people under the same roof. We're members of the same body. There is going to be conflict. And a sincere love, a love that is without hypocrisy, a love that is free from the stain or the stench of hypocrisy, is a love that is patient in tribulation. It's a love that bears long with the faults in our brothers and sisters. It's a love that bears long with offense. Oftentimes, as Peter would say, it passes over in silence. It covers a multitude of offenses, offenses that we endure as much as we commit against others. It's a love that endures tribulation. If we compare the love that Paul exhorts in verse 12 with the love that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 
then the love that rejoices in hope is a sincere love that believes all things and hopes all things. And the love that is patient in tribulation is a sincere love that bears all things and endures all things. Do you see the connection? It helps us to define what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12. It's both the temptation to discouragement, the temptation to shrink back in the face of tribulation, and the temptation to avenge ourselves or to get angry or bitter in the face of offenses that then requires the constancy associated with the third injunction in verse 12, continuing steadfastly in prayer. See the connection between those three points in verse 12. So let's talk about patient in tribulation then. What does Paul mean by this phrase? The Greek word translated tribulation in verse 12, that word is broadly used in two words. One, it refers to an external affliction, external affliction, afflictions that arise in our circumstances, often at the hands of those who afflict us, right? Persecution, hostility, reviling, derision, but not only those offenses, those difficulties, those afflictions that arise at the hands of others, but also those that just arise in our circumstances like sickness, like poverty. So it refers to external affliction. Secondly, that word is used to refer to internal, internal affliction also. Afflictions that arise within the heart and mind. Distress, despair, discouragement, anxiety, worry, fear, anguish, sorrow, and the like. Those afflictions that arise from within the heart and mind. The word for tribulation used there is a word that literally means pressure. Pressure. It literally means to press or to squash. It conveys the sense of being pressed through a very narrow opening, squeezed, pushed through a very narrow pass. And in this sense, the word is used of the oppression that tribulation brings. Affliction oppresses the Christian. Affliction, it puts you in a vice and it turns the screw. Do you see? It presses us. We are not going to avoid tribulation in this life. You're going to be put into a vice and the screw is going to be turned. Prepare yourself mentally and spiritually for that fact. You will face, all those who desire to live godly in this present age will suffer persecution. We're going to face tribulation in this life. It is with many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. It's going to be internal and it's going to be external and it's going to be both at once. We're going to face suffering. We're going to face persecution, adversity, and trouble. That is a promise, brothers and sisters. John chapter 16, verse 33, the Lord said, in the world, you will have tribulation. He also said there, be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. (laughs) We have much to encourage us in his word with respect to tribulation. Acts 14, as we've already said, it's through much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, for example, I want to give you a basis for the right heart attitude with respect to tribulation. That heart attitude that Paul is commanding us to in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, I want to give you an example of that from Philippians chapter one. Turn there with me, Philippians chapter one. A few letters to the right. And look there beginning in verse 27. Philippians chapter one, beginning in verse 27. Paul says, exhorting the church at Philippi and exhorting us by implication, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, 
I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast, you endure, right? You are patient in tribulation, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Well, thought the Christian life was supposed to be easy. We're just supposed to be blessed when we come to Jesus Christ. We have everything done for us. Let go and let God. It's not the way that Paul describes the Christian life uh, in any of his letters, particularly not here in Philippians chapter one. We are to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Our conduct is to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Verse 28. And here's how we're to conduct ourselves. By the mercies of God, or in light of all that God has done for us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are not to be in any way terrified by our adversaries. Well, why is that the case? Because we trust the Lord when we're faced with adversaries. Amen? God is our strength. He is the one who fights our battles for us. In him, we find refuge. We're not to be in any way terrified by your adversaries, verse 28, which to them, those adversaries, the fact that we're not terrified by them is evidence to them of their perdition, but is evidence to us of salvation, verse 28, and that as a gift from God. Four, verse 29, for to you, listen to this language, it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, and that's not a past tense or an aorist belief, that is a present tense ongoing belief. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in him? It has been granted to you to believe in him. It is being granted to you even now. We don't hold that in and of ourselves as a personal possession. That is from God. That is a gift of grace. That is a work of his spirit that you continue to believe. Who is it that preserves you in the faith? God does by his spirit. Right? It has been granted to you. It is a gift of his grace that you continue ongoing, present tense, believe in him. But also, verse 29, to suffer for his sake. Also, present tense, ongoing having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Notice from the text, ongoing faith and ongoing tribulation are inextricably connected, inextricably linked. It has been granted to you not only to continue believing, to believe, to continue to believe and to future believe. Not only has it been granted to you to believe, it has been granted to you as a gift of God's grace on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his sake, it has been granted to you to suffer. Ongoing faith and ongoing tribulation are inextricably linked in the Christian life. Notice, first, it has been granted. Charizomai. The root of that word has been granted is the word from which we get grace. It's the word charis. God's gift, think about it this way, right? God's gift to you on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ is not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. God's gift to you is to suffer. Now, if, if you're like me, we've got to get from here to there on that concept, right? <laughs> we've got to get from, oh no, to this is a gift of God's grace, Right? Paul has gotten there. How did Paul get there? By the word of God, by the revealed word of God, applied in the heart, by the spirit of God. That's how Paul got there. That's how we're gonna get there too, okay? It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Both the faith and the suffering are gifts from God. In that sense, tribulation is no accident. 
God is sovereign over your suffering. Nor is tribulation a sign that you're under the judgment of God. It's not an accident. It's not a sign that you're under the judgment of God. God is not punishing you for your sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It may be chastening, it may be discipline. We'll talk about that another time. But it's not condemnation. It's not the judgment of God. There is no condemnation for those in union with Jesus Christ. It's not an accident. It's not God's judgment. Your suffering has been freely given by God as a gracious gift. So then, your courage in the face of tribulation, your perseverance, your steadfast, ongoing labor for the Lord, immovable, right? All of that in the face of tribulation is, as Paul would say in Philippians chapter one, an evidence of your salvation. It's an evidence of their perdition. It's an evidence of your salvation and that from God. And that evidence, that evidence is available to you because God has bestowed upon you not only the gift or the privilege or the grace to believe in him, he has bestowed upon you the privilege, the grace to suffer for his sake. Your steadfast, persevering, immovable faith through tribulation is an evidence of your salvation. And verse 24, 29, it's described as for his sake. It's for his glory. It's for your own good, your own purification, your own refining, your own assurance. And it's for his glory, his exaltation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 12, he says, Paul says, I therefore take pleasure in infirmities. I take pleasure in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. In other words, I take pleasure in tribulation. And I glory in them. I boast in them, Paul says, because Christ's strength is demonstrated as perfect in my weakness. Paul says it's to the glory of God. So how does Paul get from here to there? Paul understands the meaning and the significance of our trials. He understands the meaning and the significance of our tribulation and how that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. He is glorified in our suffering. Paul didn't enjoy affliction. He didn't take simple pleasure in being afflicted. Paul's joy was found in the meaning and in the significance of his suffering. That's where Paul's joy was grounded. Flip the page to Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three. A gracious gift has been given to those who believe. That is the gracious privilege of suffering with him and for him in this world. And Paul understood that as a gift. That is such a gracious gift, a gracious privilege, that in Philippians chapter three, verse seven, Paul would say this. What things were gained to me? These, all these things that were once gained to me, all these things that I once took pleasure in, I have now counted as loss for Christ. Yet indeed, verse eight, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He suffered the loss of all things and counted them as minor, counted them as rubbish, counted them as nothing on the scales 
so that or for the purpose that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, and so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Think about that with me. All those things that Paul once saw as gain to him. He counts them as rubbish, as less than nothing on the scales. When compared to salvation, that righteousness which is through faith, imputed through faith, and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that I may know him. The power, the same power that was at work in Christ when God raised him from the dead is at work in you who believe, right? Paul says, and that he may have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ in his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul considered it a gift to suffer with and for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think about it with me, in in describing the church as Christ's body, it's clear that Paul thought of himself particularly but more broadly, thought of the church corporately as a continuing incarnation. I want you to think about that for a moment. Go home and meditate on that for a while. Paul, speaking of himself particularly, but thinking primarily of the church corporately, in addressing the church in her suffering, in addressing the church in her persecution, in her union with Jesus Christ, Paul thought of the church corporately, as a kind of or as a type of continuing incarnation. And that is expressed in that metaphor of the body. Jesus Christ is our head. We are his body. He is exalted. He has ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the majesty and his body is here on earth. He is enthroned. We are here on earth. Christ has identified, so identified himself, us with himself. One indication of that is the Lord speaking to Paul on the road to Damascus. Christ so identified the church with himself that when he called Paul on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? The Lord had already ascended into heaven. The Lord is seated at the right hand of the majesty. That he regarded Saul's persecution. He so identified his body, the church, with himself that he regarded Saul's persecution of his church as an assault upon his own person. It's as though it were a type of continuing incarnation, so to speak. We continue the Lord's work here. We also continue the Lord's suffering here. That's the message of Colossians chapter one. We'll talk about that in a moment. It's in light of our identification with Christ. It's by virtue of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, that his church, his body, enjoys fellowship, is to enjoy fellowship with the Lord in his suffering. That suffering adds nothing to his finished work, but it does serve to bear witness, doesn't it? It serves to bear witness to his finished work when we endure that suffering to his glory. That suffering that glorifies him bears witness to his glory, his grace, his sacrifice for us. It's no coincidence that the Greek word for witness in the New Testament is the word martus. It's the word, it's the source for our English word martyr. The New Testament refers to those who suffer and die 
for the cause of Christ, it refers to them as martyrs because in their suffering, in their death, they bear witness to Jesus Christ. That's the connection between those two words. They, the word literally refers to those who suffer and die for Christ as witnesses. In the language of Romans chapter 12, verse 12, they are those who are rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. The word there in Romans 12, 12 for patient refers to persistence. It refers to someone who simply will not stop, someone who refuses to stop. He believes in Christ through the suffering. He serves the Lord faithfully despite the affliction. He is steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He is someone who is patient in tribulation. Specifically, Paul is referring there to a love that endures, a sincere love, a genuine love that endures through persecution, through tribulation, through affliction. Like that love that the Lord Jesus Christ had for us, has for us. He, for the joy set before him, endured even the cross. John 13, 1. He loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. To the end of himself, to the end of the work, to the end of everything. He loved them to the uttermost. It is a love without hypocrisy. Now that kind of love, brothers and sisters, is a love that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. It's truly a love that can be described as for his sake. Okay? It's a love that endures through pain and adversity. It's a love that bears witness to his sacrificial love for us. It's a love that bears witness to his strength in our weakness. It's a love that is the evidence of our salvation. It's a love through which we are conformed to his death. It's a love with which we have fellowship with the Lord himself in his own suffering for us. There are many more things that could be said on that very subject. So knowing this, right? Got to get it into our ear gate, in through our eye gate, We've got to get it into our mind and down into our heart. Knowing this, knowing this, embracing this through faith, how are we then to respond to tribulation? How are we then to respond to affliction? First, Paul, James, Peter all say that we're not to be surprised by it. It is a gift of God's grace. We've been counted worthy to suffer for his name. Our trials are a treasured gift from God for all the reasons that we've stated and many more. Because of that, knowing this, knowing this, we shouldn't fear. We must not grumble. We must not complain. We cannot fold or crumble under the weight or under the pressure of them. To respond in any of those ways is not to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in our suffering, is to fall short of his glory in our trials. And how do we get from fear and doubt, discouragement and worry, to where Paul is? Desiring to fellowship with the Lord in his suffering. How do we get from fear and doubt to desiring that fellowship with the Lord? Paul could actually respond to his suffering with joy. Paul, James, Peter, all command us to respond to our trials with joy. Colossians chapter one, verse 24. It's the text we referenced just a moment ago. Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And you could say this is the ground or the foundation of his joy. He fills up in his flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul thinks of himself as a type, if you will, of a continuing incarnation, as the body. And Paul now rejoices in his sufferings, filling up in his flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. 
what remains lacking in the afflictions of Christ has nothing to do with atonement. The Lord Jesus Christ has finished and completed that work upon the cross in his own person, in his own life, his own work. That is a finished and completed work. What remains lacking in the afflictions of Christ doesn't have anything to do with that. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is the ongoing suffering that God calls his people to endure in fellowship with the Lord to his glory. Right? What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is the ongoing tribulation that he calls his people to patiently endure in love as they fellowship with the Lord in his own suffering and for his cause and for his sake and for his glory. That does not mean that we complete any deficiency in the merit of Christ, contrary to what the Roman Catholics say with their fictional treasury of merit. Okay? But rather, it is in fulfillment of our own work our own work as those who bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the ways, brothers and sisters, one of the compelling, most powerful ways that we bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ in our preaching of the gospel, uh, in our trials, in our afflictions, is by patiently enduring them for his glory. How do we get from where Paul, to where Paul is? How do we get there? How do we get to where we rejoice in our tribulation? We get there by heeding the word of God from Romans chapter 12, verse 12, by loving one another with a sincere love that rejoices in hope, that endures patiently under tribulation, and lastly, continues steadfastly in prayer. Rather than rejoicing in hope, it's the temptation to discouragement in the face of tribulation that requires the constancy of prayer. Rather than enduring in faithfulness to tribulation or through tribulation, it's the temptation to shrink back it's the temptation to fold or to crumble under the weight of our trials that requires a devotion to prayer. Dr. Murray again. The measure of perseverance in the midst of tribulation is the measure of our diligence in prayer. Did you get that? The measure of our perseverance in the midst of tribulation is the measure of our diligence in prayer. There's a direct connection between the two. Prayer is the means ordained of God for the supply of grace sufficient for every exigency, for every need, and particularly against the faint-heartedness to which affliction tempts us. We need prayer. Do you want to bear patiently under trial? Do you want to get to where Paul is, where we rejoice in our afflictions? We need prayer. We need to pray. We're not going to get there with Paul by our own wisdom. We're not going to get there with Paul by our own strength. We're not going to get there by ignoring the reality, by neglect. We need grace. God supplies that grace, that grace sufficient to our need through the means of prayer. He is the one who works in our heart a love that does not fail. He is the one who preserves us. He is the one who works in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. But further... How do we get there? We get there by heeding the word of God, Romans 12, 12. But further, as we stated at the outset of our time together this morning, to get from where we may be in our love for one another, to get from where we may be in response to the afflictions that we face in the Christian life, to get from there to Paul's example in scripture, where we are rejoicing in suffering, we need to get the word of the living God into our mind through the ear gate and through the eye gate. 
Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We need to get his word into our heart by a work of his spirit. We need him to do that work in us. Paul's joy in the midst of his suffering, Paul's endurance through tribulation is the fruit of Paul's faith in the Lord for what Paul knows to be true. And if you don't know it, then your faith is empty. There is a content of our faith. If you don't know these things, if you don't understand these things, apprehend these things, embrace these things, then your perseverance is going to be shallow. Your love's gonna be shallow. Your joy's gonna be shallow. Your faith is gonna be shallow. It's the fruit. Paul's own example is the fruit of Paul's faith in the Lord for what Paul knows to be true. And it's through that means that we resist conformity to the world. It's through that means that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. And it's through that means that we learn to serve, love, and live as we ought. The Christian life is not a matter of casual living. It is a matter of deep, serious, intense, personal, joyful, grateful, abiding engagement. Engagement. When that is the case, our suffering will glorify the one who has suffered and died for us. He'll be sure of it. I'm reminded in thinking about this of the experience of Horatio Spafford. Spafford was the senior partner in a large law firm in Chicago when he lost everything that he had in the great Chicago fire, 1873. Lost everything that he had. Had invested in land, invested in property, lost all of his investments. While dealing with the aftermath of that fire, he sent his wife Anna and their four daughters uh, to England. And he planned to uh, join them there, in part because D.L. Moody was gonna preach there. As they were gonna go to England, uh, get away from it all as it were, and to listen to D.L. Moody preach. While crossing the Atlantic, a ship was struck by another vessel, killing uh, 226 people and Spafford's four daughters. His wife, Anna, when she finally arrived in Wales, she sent a telegram to Spafford uh, that simply read, saved alone. Many of you have lost loved ones. Many of you, even now, right now, are going through tremendous difficulty with loved ones. On his trip to Wales to meet his wife, the captain alerted Spafford of the very place where the ship was struck and his four daughters were drowned. And it's there, passing by that place, that Spafford wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. You see the contrast between the two, right? When peace... In peace or in sorrow, when peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say. Taught through his word, taught through experience, applying his word, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Anna, his wife, would have three more children. One of them, a young son, age four, would die later of scarlet fever. And yet through all of that, uh, the testimony is is that Spafford's faith endured, that he was patient in tribulation. That response of faith, it is well with my soul. 
That response of faith, Paul's response in faith of taking joy in his trials, knowing that Christ's strength is perfected in his weakness, that response of faith is grounded in the truth of God that is contained in his word. It is grounded in the truth of God, unpacked by Paul in chapters 1 through 11, so that in chapters 12 through 16, we might have a ground for our Christian life, a ground for joy, a ground for hope, a ground for endurance, a ground for perseverance, a ground for love. That truth, having been received with meekness into the mind, is planted then in the heart by a work of God's Spirit. And it's in consideration of the mercies of God lavished on us through the gospel and embraced through faith that we then come to present ourselves in gratitude as living sacrifices to God. Those who count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, those who rejoice in their fellowship with him in, their, in his suffering rather than being plunged into despair over our tribulations, those who will follow him through tribulation, those who will follow him through persecution, those who will follow him even to the death Knowing, 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 right? Second Timothy chapter two, verse 11, that if we died with him, we shall also live with him. That is our hope. And if we endure, Paul says there, we shall also reign with him. We are to be patient in tribulation. We are to rejoice in hope, continue steadfastly in prayer. Amen? Pray with me. Father, help us to do it. Lord, we confess and acknowledge that it is impossible in and of ourselves uh, to endure in that way. But we rejoice, we exult in the truth that you are the one who preserves us by your grace, by work of your spirit, through the means of faith, you, Lord, will preserve us. And we are grateful for that. We rejoice in that. And we then, Lord, with the Apostle Paul, with others may say that we don't fear those who can merely kill the body. We fear our living God who can not only destroy the body, but both body and soul in hell. And we love you. Thank you, Lord, for your provision, the provision that you've made for our sin through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we grateful, Lord, for the fact that having not spared him but delivering him up for us, you have freely also given us all things and have promised to work all things together for our good. We're grateful to you for these precious promises. Help us, Lord, to lay hold of them by faith, that, that the truth of your revealed word would find its way in our ears, through our eyes, into our mind, down into our hearts. There applied by your spirit that we might live and love as you have commanded us to in a way that is worthy of the gospel for the glory, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.